a listener production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. Guy Grossi has been entrenched in the Melbourne food scene for over 40 years. He's one of a handful and a rare breed of chefs and restaurateurs that have survived and flourished over the long haul. Importantly, he's remained relevant and is still very much a tour de force in the industry. He opened his first restaurant, Quadri, in 1988, that's over 30 years ago, and bought Florentino's, a Melbourne institution, and Australia's oldest restaurant in 1999. When he's not busy running his restaurant empire, Guy is a cookbook author and TV personality, and he was awarded Le Signa del Restaurante Italiana by the President of Italy for the dedication and promotion overseas of La Cucina Italiana. Take the mickey out of my Italian if you like, but I'm trying my best. Please welcome Guy Grossi. Welcome, Guy Grossi. Thanks for coming into the studio. Mate, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm surprised you've got any time, to be honest. Look, uh, (laughs) I always have time for my good friends, Guy. Oh, is that what it is? But come on, you you are a busy man. I mean, you've got a restaurant empire, extremely difficult times, so it's not been the easiest... Uh, what is it now, 18 months or so? Yeah, of, you yeah. know, we've never felt anything like this in hospitality. It, it's been tough. Look, um, I've been in the business for about 40 years now, and um, you know, which means I traded through that you know, recession we had to have, and that was really hard. That was really hard. But you know, we didn't think this was coming, and yeah. this, there wasn't a patch on what's happened to not only the hospitality scene and all of that, but you know, um, our, our state in particular in Victoria um, has been hit really hard across many different industries. And it's not just our kids and our people working for us that are, that are hit by it because really that's what we're most concerned about is keeping those people in jobs, keeping them working. And during those really cold, bleak days of shutdown, you know, um, there were a lot of people that just got sent home and had to sit there for six months plus, you know, which is, um, does a lot it's not only your self-esteem, it's your mind. It, 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 it really plays with that whole aspect of, of yeah. stuff. So It's funny because Dave, who's the producer, and I said right at the beginning, I think of last year, let's not talk about COVID too much because probably it, it won't be that important and it will go away. And so obviously <laughs> 18 months later we're still talking it's about it. It's not gone away. It hasn't gone away and, and for quite some time. So let's, let's have a little shot at it. From your perspective, I mean you talked about your staff there briefly, has it affected you? Absolutely. Um, look, we were really lucky in the sense that we started Grossier Casa. So it, we went from being a restaurant to a food delivery service, as many of our counterparts did as well. Um, and it got very busy. So I was kept moving, but I went from a, a, an area or a position of quite confident, you know, I'm 56, as I said, been in the business for about 40 years. Kids have come into the business now and all that sort of stuff. So from a position of kind of like, well, now it's maybe time to, I was talking to my brother-in-law, now it's maybe time to, you know, start to actually enjoy the fruits of our labour a little bit. We had some a couple of trips planned. Roddy was going to New York with his family. I had a trip planned to go to the south of France with Melissa. Um, and, of course, this all happened and that all changed. So we went from that position to basically in the saddle, on the tools, every day again, pretty much seven days a week just to try and keep things flowing, keep things going and keep our people in work and working and all that and just trying to basically 
survive, get the business out there and get, get us moving so that we had some kind of income going. Of course, that affects you and it affects you, you know, in very profound ways. You know, you go from being quite excited about things and quite happy and very creative to, hey, look, you know, we're creative, but in a different way now. We're in a survival mode. And look, I'm not complaining about things because there are many people around the world that are in much worse positions than us here in Australia and, and also in business. Um, so in, in a way, we're still quite lucky that we've been able to spin around and do stuff and, and keep going. Yeah. Can you describe that moment? I don't know whether or not you can picture it, but was there a moment where you just went, shit? Yeah. You know, because you've got multiple restaurants. Yeah, yeah, so it's yeah. not a case of, you know, maybe people listening and going, well, okay, you know, you just convert from serving meals to, to pick up and take it, away or deliver. It took us as a family about three to four weeks to actually figure out what the hell we were doing next. We just sat there and we said, okay, we're going to get creative. We're going to do some good stuff. Maybe focus on trying to, you know, see what the next steps are, you know, maybe even do some, you know, research into writing our next cookbook or something like that. But then times were getting sadder and more insecure. And about three weeks into it, I said, guys, this is not happening. We got to do something here. And that's when we started to create Grossia Casa. And that project probably in normal peace times would have probably taken us 12 to 18 months to get <laughs> off the ground. Under that kind of pressure, we we got it up and running within three weeks. And it was quite good. Loredana did a lot of the work on the website and we got, you know, people loved to help us. That we, we well, Through this whole thing, what we found was that good friends became great friends and most people that you thought you were going to, you know, have problems with were great supporters and great helpers. I, I have to give a nod out to 99% of our suppliers who we were indebted to. We had accounts to pay. And, you know, I was making phone calls, tough phone calls to say, you know, look, guys, you know, we're closed. And, you know, the so sort of response was, Guy, it's embarrassing that you're even calling about this. We're glad you're communicating with us. But of course, there's no problem, and we were supported so well. Mark Chu, our photographer, came and did food shots to get our website up. Gratis. Um, he's an amazing photographer, yeah. an amazing soul. I'm well, actually, and he's a good man. Yeah. And and lots of great stories like that came out of it. You you really found out that you know th through this adversity came the goodness and the strength of everyone pulling together to help each other out to have a positive income. But yes, there was that moment where it was, oh my God, what do we do next? That did happen. And then you sort of always been the sort of bloke that, you know, if you're in a fight, you're not going to go into a fetal position and lie down. You're going to keep kicking and screaming and fighting no matter how adverse the situation gets. Mm. Because if you don't, you won't survive and you, you can't get through. You've got to be a fighter and that's kind of what we've been doing. Yeah. From the staff's perspective, how did you how did you deal with that? Uh, well, we assured them that they were all going to continue to get looked after. Some chose to um, take their entitlements, like holidays and things, because they had to. Some that were in a position that um, didn't have to said, "Look, leave them in there. When we're back at work, we'll continue that later." So they were they were. We have a really good team. I've got to say, I know it becomes a bit of a cliche, but. The guys that work with me, um, and I use that term purposely because we do work together on the front line virtually every day, they have a great deal of respect, not just for me and the family, which is really nice, but also for what they're doing and the business. Mm. And they're very supportive. And through this whole thing, the whole team was extremely supportive. And the ones that could go and move back with mum for a while, or they all did that. 
But then we got rolling, we got up and, and going again, and we had a lot of immigrant workers as well. Unfortunately, we've lost a few of those through what's happened. Um, so we used the JobKeeper and, and what we did was when an Aussie reached their JobKeeper limit and the guys were so happy to share it that way too, where then we would start having to pay them. So we, we paid an immigrant worker and got them on board doing some hours as well. So we tried to keep the team together as much as we possibly could because we knew that over the other side, we'd need this group of amazing people or as many of them as we could retain when we got through to the other side. And that's been proven now, apart yeah. from the old flash shutdown. Like in, <laughs> it's amazing that private operators in hospitality have had to do this when the government wouldn't. You know, that uh, visa population, which I think accounts for something like 30% of the workforce, mm. was just left high and dry. Yeah, yeah. And everybody's stopped talking about it. And in, in fact, they're the kind of rock bed of our industry, certainly in our big cities. We're all immigrants and my family, um, as I said to you before, came out here in 1960 um, and I was born here obviously and raised here and we, we've been, as siblings, we've been thankful to my dad who was a chef and came out here um, and my mum that they brought us out and raised us here in this beautiful state, this beautiful city and I've watched it grow from a magnificent city into a fantastic city that's international, 24 hours, and it's built on on immigration. Like yeah. It's multicultural and, as you know, we've all come sort of from yeah. somewhere else, you know. and uh, brings the colour and the excitement and the, exactly. you know, yeah. and the food for, from our perspective, right? 100%. You know, you could dine out for 30 days on different cuisine <laughs> every day. Um, yeah. and, and that's exciting and that's positive and that's beautiful. And to see all these all this wonderful eclectic culture and, and the, all these people come from all walks of life um, coming into our city and contributing. Some of them had been here for three or four years, you know, and, and I felt that from that point of view, they needed to be helped. And if we could, then we should, we ought to, so that, you know, we can retain them because they, as you said, they're, they're part of the bedrock of what, mm. what our beautiful, colourful city is built on. Yeah, and it's nice to hear that as a family business, and known for being a family business mm. that you wrapped them all up and kept them close. How many staff have you got across the board of all your restaurants? Well, we had we were only about 140 to 160, and now we're down to about 80. But we're rebuilding, isn't it? Yeah, but we're rebuilding. One of our restaurants, unfortunately, won't reopen. Merchant at the Rialto. Um, that's in an end of town where it's just it, we deemed it that it would just take too long and it was too hard to turn that ship around. So we um, gave up the leasehold there, which is sad. It was a beautiful, we were there for about 11 years, um, nearly 12, and it was great while it was functioning and, yeah. you know, that beautiful end of town. Right? It's good space and, and that, that end of town, it was. <laughs> feels very Melbourne, that's what it, it does. It does, yeah, it does, sense. yeah. Um, so, but we've managed, managed to keep everything else. Um, we've got, you know, Florentino's up and running again. Little Ombre, our pizzeria next door, that's that's up and running, albeit it's only doing nights at the moment, but we're 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 building our team as well to be able to open open more hours. Um, but also we're waiting for the population to come back into the city yeah. for that lunchtime kind of Well that's of a break. question. I mean, you are in the I mean, all your businesses, well not all, but you know, they center around the yeah. C B D. They do. And Florentinos is like yeah. a hub of it. Yeah. So how's the C B D uh look now? Uh, well, it's, for those that don't go there every day, which includes me, actually. Yeah. Well, it's better than what it was. At one stage, not so long ago, you could have thought you were in a sci-fi movie with just like tumbleweeds going down <laughs> Burke Street. But now um, we've actually got this week. We've started to see some real traffic come back, some foot traffic as well. So that's exciting to see some movement actually happening. What I found was when we did start to re when we did reopen the restaurants reopened back in November. 
you know, you had these little hubs, like you had all these people around Florentino, then you'd walk away from us and you'd have nobody until you got to the European and there was a hub of people around the European. Then you could walk down Spring Street to Ronnie's place, Distazio's, mm. and there'd be nobody on the way. But then when you got there, there were people. So there were no, it was like there was no, none of the ant trails going on, but people were coming to support the restaurants they loved. So yeah. that, that we actually got quite busy over December. When I say busy too, you've got to understand that with restrictions, we can only do um, at the moment 50% capacity really. It's one for two square metre rule. So so we can only really use half our spaces. We've got a, a, a expanded outside area now using a bit more space out th- outside there. But, um, you know, Melbourne is a fickle town when yeah. it comes to weather. But um, when, on the good days, it's it's pretty good. Mind you, customers are a resilient bunch. I still think, you know. Melbournians like, are. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? I, yeah. I look at it and I go, it's probably one of the only cities that it'll be freezing cold, like yeah. six degrees, and we're all outside with our sunglasses on. <laughs> and, and, coats. Our, and our coats. So yeah. we're, we're going to be outside if it's the last thing we do. It's nice to see, but I think a lot of people, you know, that are outside the industry and everybody I meet, you know, whether it's walking the dog or, I don't know, you know, bumping into someone I haven't seen for a while, I'm trying to champion, get out there, because they go, oh, business is back to normal. I go, oh, it's not even close. Mm. I mean, we just said before we jumped on, the mics that, you know, the sweet spot in a restaurant is when it's it's got energy and it's mm. busy and mm. it's just on the edge of, you know, like, oh, I'm waiting 30 seconds too long for my coffee and then it turns up. That's the that's where we want to be sitting, right? And if it's half empty, we're already compromised. Well, the costs have gone up over the years dramatically and obviously what's happened in the recent past hasn't helped. So you're right, you've got to find that sweet spot, that sweet spot where you've got enough people to carry out good service so that you're not, you know, losing customers. but yeah you're not overdoing it so that you you are actually making, when I say profit, at least you, if you're just making sure that you are covering all the expenses and you can keep rolling, then that's really the crucial thing. And you can grow from there. You grow from there. And yeah. I think in these times that is really important for people to realise that you've got to get back to that kind of spot and then you can take it further. Yeah. I have heard from lots of people that we've spoken to, even either in the studio or outside, that, and I've been surprised by the resilience and it reminds me that hospitalitarians, restaurateurs, they're shoulder to the wheel kind of people anyway. So their optimism is high, even in difficult difficult circumstances. In the network of chefs and, and restaurateurs that you deal with, do you feel the same thing or is there a is there help happening? Are you supporting each other? Or is Abs- it- oh, look, absolutely. I have never seen the Melbourne food food scene so together. Mm. Uh, everyone speaks to each other. Um, you know, we've, we've formed, as I was mentioning before, we've formed greater friendships, greater bonds. And that, that whole competitiveness that's still there, but that competitiveness where, you know, our... Uh, you know, bugger what the guy up the road's doing, you know, we're doing this and we're going to mm. be like this and be like that and secretive kind of thing. Everybody's sharing information. And in within our group, we've got a group of about um, 35 restaurateurs that talk to each other and and we, you know, exchange information when it comes to things like what's going on with legislation, um, what's going on just in the world of what we're doing to try and, you know, promote something or what we're, you know, everybody's sharing that information now and coming together as a, as a really strong group. I've never seen it more unified. And and I think this is one of the things that I've been advocating is saying that, look, guys, we can't just let a good disaster go unnoticed. You know, we've got to really use this and harness it and keep it like for even when times are good now, what we should do is keep this sort of unity that we've created and this bond and this friendship because we can be stronger by actually sharing the information rather than trying to 
one-upmanship on each other. We can be much more unified much and have much more strength. We can be better researchers. We can be better buyers. We can be better trainers. We can be an industry that's stronger in in attracting young people back into our industry and starting to do and, and there's the very positive spirit out there. I want to just say, Gary, it's it's been a very negative time. It's been a really hard time. But what you were saying before about our hospitality people they are a positive bunch, and through all this, everyone's still kicking and fighting and screaming and saying, "We will survive. We will get through." We're just finding ways of of recreating and and restarting back up again. So I think you know people say, "Oh, we we can't have the negativity," but but there's real strength and positivity out there. It's just that we've got this monster we're dealing with, but we are dealing with it. We're yeah. taming the monster. It's good. Or taming the monster. I like that. That could be the. The title for the uh, the <laughs> podcast, I love that. Let's talk about something a little more upbeat. Yeah. Whether or not you accept it or not, because I don't want to make you feel old, but you're the kind of godfather, you know, the, what is it, <laughs> il padrino of uh, the Melbourne food scene. And like you say, how long have you been in the business? Did you 40, say? 40 years. It's almost yeah. hard to say, isn't it? Yeah. Well, 40, 40 years. <laughs> it's a harsh realisation. I started young now, Gary. I walked into a kitchen when I was, well, I actually walked in with my old man, like he used to take me to work where he was working on weekends and school holidays and stuff like that. And I absolutely hated it. Like the hours he worked, how hard he worked. And of course, as a kid, you always get given the potato peeling or the sweeping of floors and stuff like that. And so I swore I would never be a chef. I was just like, <laughs> I'm not going to do this. Guess what? When I turned 15, I thought I'm doing an apprenticeship. I'm going to be a chef. That's all I want to do. Um, it's kind of, as you know, once it gets under your skin, mm. you know, you just, Love doing it. And, yeah, it's a you hard know, habit to it kick, is, right? It is, it is. <laughs> and sometimes you think to yourself, why would you want to do it to yourself? Yeah. Why would you want to open another restaurant? Why would you even think about it? Um, <laughs> and there's a lot of, there's the, if you were a, a normal thinking business person and you had a little bit of sanity about you, there's a lot of reasons why you talk yourself out of it. But it's hard to kind of explain the reasons why you don't. But I know you understand it. It's an adrenaline rush. It's it's something that you that you get, the sat terrible sort of feeling of satisfaction when you're actually serving guests and they're enjoying what you do and you have a feel of control because you you understand you know your game and what you're doing it feels really nice that's what it's all about and that's why I, I jumped into it never looked back of course dad was against me going into the business he said no you can't it's just easy street you think you're just going to walk into a kitchen so I thought I'd go and work with him but he said no go out and get some jobs <laughs> so I had to do that first so let's just just try, I just want to kind of track you back a bit because your dad was Pietro was that right See, let's talk about that immigration because you said you were, you were born that's correct I was here born in Australia here, but yeah. obviously your mum and dad did they meet yeah. In Australia or did... No, they met in Milan. They were both working in restaurants and okay. they met in Milan. Mum's from Verona. Dad was from the south in Puglia. But back when Dad was 18, there was very little opportunity back in the south of Italy. Um, it was sort of post-war and all that. So he immigrated went to Milan and that's where he learned his trade and that's where he met Mum. And then in 1960, a gentleman called Mario Vigano, who owned Mario's Hotel in Exhibition Street, would go to Milan to get wait staff and chefs and cooks and, you know, basically staff. I mean, mm. it was a different dining scene back in 1960 yeah. in Melbourne and I know through the anecdotes that my father shared, had shared with me and so forth. So Dad was one of those young chefs that uh, Mr Mario, as they called, brought out and um, he started working for Mario's and the rest is history. He never went back, not a day in his life. And Mario's he loved being an institution. 
it was run, yeah. institution. Yeah, it was a big, it was one of those. I, I guess one of the first big time city restaurants for Melbourne. Um, I, I guess uh, Florentino was there. The Society was there. Mario's was there. The Latin was there. Um, you had the Molinas up at the Imperial. So it was that that era where Melbourne had that beautiful sense that, you know, people were being, had just, you know, sort of gotten the travel bug and were learning what the European style of, of eating was all about and everything. And these restaurants were just emerging. It was mm. a, a pretty exciting time for Melbourne. Do you remember any of those, uh, you talked about the anecdotes from your dad of what Melbourne was in terms of its dining scene before those institutions popped up. Do you remember any of them? Well, one thing I remember is that um, he would comment how diners had become a lot more discerning through time like you know once upon a time um you know italian food was italian food but with kind of an anglo little twist to it mm. nowadays it wouldn't be acceptable in melbourne because it has to be as authentic as possible or creative in but and it still has to have good dna we crave that don't we good, but absolutely rewind the clock no, but 50 years no, it, it was <laughs> it had to have the little tweaks you know so that yeah. it made it more user friendly mm. i mean you even think of a the name of my restaurant, Florentino. It's um, in Italian. It would be Fiorentino, and in English, it would be the Florentine. So it is actually a made-up word that that <laughs> See, appealed I thought about that. that appealed to people. In, <laughs> so it could be said easily, but it still had that Italian ring to it. That was, uh, and that was open in 1928. So it sort of speaks of the lay of the land back at the, in those times. The other thing is, you know, we talked about outdoor dining before through necessity, but once upon a time, the streets of Melbourne had very little of that sort of stuff going on, you know, and um, the Italians had all gone to Ligon Street and, you know, there was not much, you know, through the 70s and that, there wasn't much of that going on. And you see the you see the evolution, even when I was a young kid during the 80s, you know, from, from what I could see happening on the streets of Melbourne um, to now, it's like it's, it's a different city altogether. Mm. Do you remember going into the kitchen with your dad or being mm, oh, dragged yeah. to work? I mean, can yeah, you absolutely. describe that or yeah. maybe a smell that you remember? I hated it. It was so cold in the winter, <laughs> so hot in the summer. And as I said, you got all the shit jobs. So, you know, it was um, it, it was just one of those it, – it, kitchens are loud. To a young kid, you know, it's loud, We've it's cold. We've got a cute sense of hearing yeah, and, you know. Oh, it, it's just uh, – it just wasn't very pleasant. So, so how did it turn from that unpleasant experience, maybe being dragged to work with your dad and thinking, I never want to do this, to maybe a penny drop moment where you actually – I mean, peeling potatoes sounds like a terrible job, but there are odd moments where I actually like peeling it, it's, potatoes. It's very therapeutic. <laughs> <laughs> it's like washing the dishes. It it's is, not that it? bad sometimes. Yeah. Like, what? It's not that bad sometimes. Yeah. Um, you can go away in your own sort of space. I'm busy. Um, the penny kind of dropped for me when I realised that I could actually hold a knife and cut something with it. it made me feel nice, you know. I, it, it's what I was saying to you before, like when you're a chef and you're at the table and you, you can, you've got a skill, it, it puts you in command of, what you're doing at the time, you know. If I'm feeling a little flat, you know, and I'm at home, I love to put on a lentil soup or a pasta fagioli or something like that or a, a nice vegetable soup. It, it kind of, you go through that whole act of cutting and searing and sort of braising and then the smell in the house gets beautiful and mm. warm and luscious and all those layers of flavour start developing and it makes you feel good. Yeah, how beautiful. And mm. at home, what did it look like? Because I read somewhere that... Um, and I'm, I'm not sure of the exact quote I think you gave, but it was the fact that um, you don't remember your dad being there. He was always at work. Is that right? He was at work a lot. He Sometimes in his, through his career he worked like three different jobs. Um, and he he did that to obviously, you know, give the family a, a good life and, you know, he managed to 
buy a house and raise mm. us and send us to school, all that, all that jazz. But mum was the main chef at home. Mm. She was the main cooker. So whenever you wanted to find her, you went to the kitchen and she'd be there generally. And she was a great cook. She could cook so much beautiful, tasty food. And she could cook it on the smell of an oily rag, you know, she, she, and there would be nothing ever wasted. And I, I think I, my dad was meticulous in the kitchen about wastage and he was fierce about that. Mm. He, he always used to say to me, just look in the bins, always look in the bins because that's where you'll see your food cost, you know, just make <laughs> sure you check that out. Um, but mum was about, you know, the whole, the whole concept of if it's wasted, it's a crime. It's, 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 um, it's a sin, she yeah. used to say, it's a sin because somebody had to make that food or grow that food and we could eat another meal out of that food. So why let it go to waste or let it go into the bin? She mm. was very much about that. You know? And how did that, you know, how did that look? I mean, I remember my grandparents, I don't know why it sticks in my head, obviously because I'm a chef now, but it was, you know, a little tin of chicken fat in the in the fridge or, you know, tea leaves and eggshells in a tub on the bench top that would end up on the garden, you know, stuff mm. like this. And actually now, you know, I feel quite responsible almost to my grandmother to or my grandfather to keep the chicken fat. And, you know, even though I feel it's going to give me a heart attack, apparently, <laughs> apparently the evidence is now not in favour of other oils. It's all, all, all oils all are in, okay, right? All in doses. All, uh, doses, all in doses. Yeah. So is that how it looked in the house? I mean, what do you remember? I mean, um, well, there was always a loaf of bread if it was purchased, it was in the bread box. And until it was finished, it wasn't thrown away. So I always remember that there was stale bread there, but there was always use for stale bread. So, you know, you could, at, at the first parts of it, you could be toasted and oiled and yeah. garlic into a bruschetta, or it could make a wonderful panzanella, a beautiful salad with balsamic vinegar and tomato and basil leaves in the summertime. But it was, I would always remember the bread would never be, oh, this is too old, it gets thrown away. You know, it would have to be really, really gone, you know. <laughs> a brick. A brick, yeah, before it, before it got considered for the bin. But um, things like that I remember and always, you know, um, we'd come home and there would always be something on the stovetop, you know, there'd always be pots on the stovetop with stuff. Even in later life when we started, when I started working, getting home later at night, it was a bit of disappointment when you got home and the pots were on the stove and you opened them up and they were clean pots. <laughs> disappointment. It's like, what have you done with all the food today? Yeah. But there was usually some bits of uh, sugo or a bit of pasta left over or maybe a bit of roast left over and she'd leave it there purposely and it would get consumed. It would just get consumed because mm. people coming and going in our house all the time. I was going to ask the question but when you talk about it, it seems obvious, but the romance or the, the identity that the Italians have around food is very all-encompassing, which would have been something completely new and different when your mother and father came to Australia. I mean, a very different uh, place to live. Where, does it, where do you think that comes from? The Italian kind of spirit and identity cemented well, around food. I think I think the table is a ritual more than just a place you go to sustenance for sustenance. You come around the family table um, to talk, to converse, to to start a fight, finish a fight, resolve a fight. <laughs> Which is another you know, Italian. Yeah, it's you know, very politi much. So. Was it politics, Poli coffee, food? Yeah, you know. Very much so. <laughs> Obviously, the food component is the – that's the medium. That's what draws you there. That's a draw card. And I, I believe restaurants are the same thing too. You know, people say you, you've got to have great food, you've got to have great – yes, of course, you've got to have great food and you've got to have great service. Of course, that's what we sell, right? A great wine list, you know, some some good beverage. But at the end of the day, these are all these are all a trick. Like they're just what we put out there for, for people to latch on to. Yeah, we're going to go out for dinner and have nice food and nice wine and good service. 
But in actual fact, you're coming there for an experience. You're coming there to feel great. You're coming there to feel nice. But we can't sell that because we can't say, look, we want you to come to our place so we can make you feel nice. You're, sell- <laughs> you're selling the food and the beverage, but in actual fact, you, you've got the experience that become that comes to the fore. And I think the family table is much the same as that. You know, you've got to have some nice food and, and all of that, but then that becomes important too because you know, you sort of get picky about that. You want it to be lovely. You want it to be authentic, as we've said before, and delicious to eat. And then you're conversing about the food and you might say, well, where did this come from? Who grew it? Oh, this is a piece of beef I got from Tasmania or something like that. And you, you just, the conversation goes on and on and on. And get, people get very fired up and passionate about it. It's quite, it's quite exciting and quite interesting. I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. On YouTube during lockdown, I must have been watching so much on food, you know, whether it was Malaysian, Indonesian, whatever. And I'd pop onto a channel that was a particular Italian guy and the argument around how, say, a particular dish, could be cacio e pepe, for example, had been adulterated and was just impossible for a native Italian to get the wrap mm. their head around, I really enjoyed. And actually you learn these tiny little kind of nuances mm-hmm. to a dish that as a professional chef, maybe I'd just missed along the way in, in my busyness. Do you feel like that about the adulteration of Italian dishes or the changing of Italian dishes, you know, from traditional to modern? Because you're in both camps, well, right? we are, but I think the important thing for me, um, and all chefs can be different, and, and that's the good thing. We should celebrate that, mm. that people are different. We shouldn't, I don't think we should be going down that pathway where we just have everything that's so rigid and the world would be a really boring place if we didn't have people's differences and, mm. and, you know, different ways of doing things. And I don't think you've missed it as a chef. You've probably just never looked at that particular thing, but, you know, you would have seen it if you had it. Um, but from that point of view, going back to the question you asked me, I believe that Italian food, if you're going to be an advocate for Italian cooking, Italian food, and I am quite traditional in, in many of our venues and what we do, um, for example, Garum, which is in Perth with the Western Hotel, it's a very Roman-inspired restaurant and we really – and you mentioned cacio pepe, which mm. is a, a particular Roman dish. And really when you think about it, the elements of that dish is – what is it? There's three it's elements. Like three, gra- yeah, three, three ingredients. Three things yeah. in it. It's the it's, – it doesn't have to be homemade pasta, but beautiful homemade pasta. You've got the, the cheese and the pepper and it all comes together into this – wonderful gluey sort of mess in the in the pan and and it's just delicious to eat it, it's it's a highlight if it's done ever so well but if it's split and it's not done really well it's not quite so good so i think if you're going to call that a cacio pepe somebody asked me about a carbonara the other day which is another roman classic yeah. is it all right for carbonara to have tomato in it and still call it a carbonara and i said well no i, I got to draw the line on that one because it's not a carbonara just call it something else and and it would will be a different dish but and as far as creativity goes i think we can still be creative as traditional italian chefs or cooks but i think you still need to have a postcode the dish still needs to have a passport you know it needs to have some kind of 
some kind of reason for it to exist um, and not just, you know, like a, a dish that's thrown together with a few different ingredients just as a concoction just for the sake of throwing together a dish. Yeah, I think, you know, it's really important. And and knowing that we live in a – we don't live in Italy, we live in Australia and what's available to us here in this country, and I think you'll agree that the produce that we have here is pretty well next to none. We have such beautiful produce available to us. I bought, I bought some tuna yesterday that was glowing when it walked through the door um, and we put a dish on with um, a little puttanesca sauce. So we just slow press some tomatoes into a juice spiked it up with a bit of oregano and some olives and some white anchovy and dressed our beautiful fresh tuna with that. And it, it was just delicious. But did it taste Italian? Yeah, sure. Would it be an Italian dish? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But it tasted Italian, but yeah. with good Aussie ingredients. And I think that's that's where I like to think my cooking goes. Yeah, I love that idea. I know when I've been to Italy, there's constant argument about the, the minutiae, you know, the tiny detail, whether mm, it is mm. or whether it isn't. And families will argue about whether it is or whether it isn't. But what I love about it is the fact that it is that monoculture in a sense, you know, that it's very proud and fiercely proud of its food. Yep. But to steer them away from that is a, is a difficult thing. So coming to Australia allows you to kind of, you know. Expand it a expand little bit. Expand and yeah. spread and, and take its essence, as you yeah. say, and, and develop it and take it in a different direction. Do Italians that live in Italy, whether they're friends, relatives or associates, look at what you're doing and go, can't do uh, that? Or no, I, I think we toe the line at, at, a, at a safe spot. And I think we try not to do anything that doesn't fit within our filter. And our filter is really important to us. But we can be creative. But I don't. I haven't heard of anybody thinking that we're doing the wrong thing. Um, and the Italians over there are progressing as well. So there, there's many avant-garde type restaurants over there that are some of the best restaurants in the world, and they're doing some crazy stuff. And you know, you you hear or hear, hear them speak, hear the chef speak, or, or 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 see what they're doing, and they will say, you know, we we need to progress. We can't just look in the in the you know rearview mirror all the time. A, a, a cucina needs to move forward, keep evolving. And it, to an extent, I agree with that. But if you're going to have an ossobuco in Milano with, um, you know, some saffron rice, then make it an ossobuco. And, mm. and I, I, I would prefer to have it as it was meant to be rather than sort of, you know, try and adulterate that dish instead of inventing something that's probably has more authenticity because it's new, but it, it uses the principles and fundamentals of good, solid Italian cooking. It's very hard, isn't it, to recreate a dish or a version of a dish if you're taking it left of centre and keeping its heart or its relevance, isn't Correct. it? Like when you describe that, there's so many things, mm. and you could actually, for us, to make us hungry, describe that dish because that, that would be hard, that, that kind of heart and the texture well, of all. Well, I think you just hit the nail on the head there <laughs> where you said it and where it doesn't lose its heart. And I mm. think you can move it around, but once you see that that soul has flown out the window on that particular mm. dish then it's 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 gone and I think you've lost more than what you gained. Mm. But that particular it's a particular dish because it is a Milanese dish and yeah, it's make a, us hungry guys. Oh it's a it's a <laughs> it's a shin it's a shin of yearling um of yearling or, or larger veal, heavy veal. It's gotta be a bit bigger than a normal bobby veal that's too small because you it's the marrow that you want, as you know, Gary. So you you've got this lovely shin cut um and you're searing it off and then you've got your your vegetables and your aromats and you saute those off, carrot, onion, garlic, celery, um, some bay leaves in there, you know, a few simple herbs and aromats. Then you've got your tomato paste. You can use red wine, but I prefer white because it keeps it a bit 
lighter and a bit more, um, you, the flavour of the meat shines through more. And then your liquid, your stock or your water and and, and we said the white wine and then it's just covered, it goes in the oven and it and did I say we sear the osobuco first? Yeah, we you, you have, that's yeah. very important. And then it goes into the oven and gets um, braised, usually for about an hour and a half to two hours, really quite slow, nice and gently. So there's a process of reduction it, and yeah, concentration. Yeah. And, and then and then from there you take the meat out of the sauce. You, you can take it both ways. You can just leave it as it is, nice and rustic with all the veggies through it and everything, which is fantastic. Or you can refine it and make it a bit more the Milanese court style and find the sauce and then put it back over the meat. But always with a bit of gremolade over the top. When and gremolata is? I mean, for the people that are listening? Lemon parsley, basically, but you can have a little bit of rosemary or garlic in there as well if you want to make it a little bit richer. But yeah. I like the lemon, just lemon parsley because it's But it takes it up. Like, I mean, if you oh, have it without it sharpens the gremolata. It sharpens it, just lifts it to the next <laughs> level. And my favourite accompaniment, as I mentioned before, is the riso milanese, which is the yellow rice. I love to eat osobuco with, with saffron rice. Mm. You see, and then you've got those soft textures of the braise mm-hmm. and the risotto the as well. Sauce together. mixing through the rice. See, how the hell do you bring that up to date? You know, uh, well, it is up to date. <laughs> it is up to date. Pop the rice. I mean, it's who very cares? now. I remember where I think it would have been for a competition like Daryl Cox or something like that. You know, for Young Apprentices, and somebody did fish and chips. It's when George and you know Ray were we were all yeah, at Phoenix, yeah, yeah. and when we owned Phoenix, and uh, somebody did fish and chips. It, they brought it up to date, and I just went. Nah, I just look. I want to encourage you, but there's nothing. You know, the, when I think about, if you think about fish and chips, and it can be terrible, or it can be brilliant. The crunch, mm. you know, the soft fish, maybe even that little release of steam when you, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. pop it open. I said, you're just missing the idea of what that dish is. You could put it in a newspaper; it wouldn't make any difference if you haven't got that kind of mm. essence of the dish. But you understand the tiny little bits about that dish that makes it. Perfect. You know, yeah. we've all had bad fish and chips, soggy fish and chips, you know, from a particular place. place Mind you, it depends where you, who you're with. I mean, you can have soggy fish and chips. You remember it as the best that's, fish and that, chips. That's true too. That's you know? true too. That's a, or, or if Time and place. You know, somebody said to me once, if you've had your first um, creme brulee in a Parisian bistro when you're in your 20s and you've never had one before, it's well, the, that's the best one you're ever going to have. That becomes a benchmark, <laughs> doesn't it? You'll never get a better. Every, from then on, you're spoiled for creme brulee. You'll go to any other restaurant and you go, yeah. no, it wasn't as good. Yeah, it's in, in your subconscious. Yeah. So if I can just talk about your first restaurant, because that was uh, Quadri, is that right? That's right. I, yeah, I'm just yeah. looking at the date, 88. Yeah. I hadn't even got to Australia in 88. How old were you? Because I'm not that much younger than you. I'm 54. Yeah. So you must I was have, young. I was very young. Like 20, 21. 21. Or? 21 when we opened that. I opened it with my wife. Um. It was in High Street, Armadale. It was a small restaurant, only say uh, 45, 50 seats. And um, we bought it very, very cheaply and the rent was really, really good. And I remember thinking, I was, I really wanted to do it um, and it was like, it, it was either go travelling or do this and I just had this bug. I wanted to do it and I went ahead and did it and I remember thinking, look, you know, we're going to give it a crack. If it doesn't work, we'll just sell and Go do something else. Um, the optimism get, of youth, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Look, <laughs> looking back, I would not recommend it to a young person today, especially in this environment. But this environment aside, forget it. Let's just say they look. You know what? You normal. know what's beautiful is they'll always ignore you, and they'll go and do it. If they well, that's do good, it. and that's, and the that's maybe of, what they should. That's right. But I got my business experience <laughs> through doing it, um, and through business courses later when I realised I need to. I need some more work on my education. So I started to go and do that off my own accord because 
you know, as you get older, you, you get it less intelligent. You know, you sort of, you start to, re- you start to realise when you realise what you don't know, you know, it starts to get. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. It is. Mm. So, you, so I realised that I needed more work and needed help from people. It was a different environment back then and, you know, not to poo-poo what we did, but I think it was easier back then to get get it over the line and we, we were forgiven for a lot um, whilst we had that experience. And we made a few a lot of mistakes along the way as mm. well, um, and they're all good learning, um, learning things. You know, you have to make some. There's got to be some failures, obviously, yeah. along the way for you to have your successes. But yeah, for I I, I think that you know having a, a better understanding of business, a better business acronym, um, you know, some fi- basic financial understanding. You know, learning how to read a P and L before you go into business is probably justifiable. And then just, you know, obviously um, surrounding yourself with really good people but mm. from the get-go, you know, good accountant, good attorney, you know. It's all too much for a 21-year-old, can Mate, I tell you? you I, don't even think about it. You know, all, all we were thinking about was, you know. Putting the first plate of food yeah, on Yeah, doing nice food and. Yeah. What be, do you remember any moments where, it's Melissa, right? That's right. Do you remember yeah. any moments where at that point, you know, maybe it was just be- the night before you opened that Melissa and yourself sat down and went, you know, this is what we're going to do or little kind of tiny bits that you remember talking yeah, about. Well, or the first dish over the past maybe. Oh, man, I can't remember that. But, <laughs> but we were very excited about creating this space and making it our own and giving it our personality um, and, and all of that. So we, we did used to talk a lot about what it was going to feel like and we used benchmark examples, you know, and back then there were different restaurants that were really, really – cool, you know, like Ian Hewitt's and Fleury and mm. not that we, you know, wanted to copy what they were doing, but we used them as inspiration. You know, there was Petit Shoe down the road, which was another fabulous restaurant. Um, you know, so there were these kind of beautiful restaurants around that we were inspired by and some of the really good places in Sydney as well. Um, so we had this really, what we thought was a clear vision and notion about what we wanted to do. But of course, you know, it evolved along the way so quickly and so fast. It was, it was a lot of moving parts to it. And we realized we have to quickly learn about stuff uh, and learn more than what we already knew because we were, we were very young. Was there a night of horrors or a night of ultimate s- success s- that you went, gee, we're bloody good at we, this or we're bloody terrible at this? We had several night, <laughs> nights of horrors. Um, no, there was, all, there was the odd service that was, you know, um, could have been a lot better and a lot smoother. Um, but you know, we were never discouraged by it. We were always encouraged to, you know, keep on battling on. And we had some great loyal customers and guests from around the area and they supported us a lot. They were, and they were encouraging too. They were like, they'd let us know if things weren't the way they, but they'd come back and they, and because they had more good times and negative times, obviously. And I think, you know, through our, through my business career, what I've, I've learned is that if you get given the opportunity by a guest to rectify a situation if they've had something that hasn't gone quite well with your business and they've given you that opportunity, you seize that moment as an opportunity to have a customer for life because they've handed it to you on a silver platter. And if you are able to turn that around professionally and make a good situation out of it, they're yours forever. Yeah. It's a really interesting point that you make because so many of the top people in the industry or people that have been around for a long time say exactly the same thing. It's this appreciation or celebration of the customer. I think when you're a young chef, certainly when I was young, customers were just somewhere else mm, mm. and all I was worried about was the food. It took, And I think it took opening my first restaurant. It was like a hard lesson to learn mm. about 
how you think about a customer and that you think you appreciate them and you think that you, you're working for them, but then when you really do, it's actually a, a big... Well, it's a sea apart, a notion apart. Yeah. It is. It yeah. really is. When you, when you clicked into it. Yeah. What I try and tell my guys, even when I'm in the kitchen now with them, is, you know, we can't think of ourselves as chefs and the front of house think of themselves mm. as front of house. We have to think about ourselves as a cohesive unit, one team. And that's really important. And it's easy to give that lip service and just say say it, but it actually doesn't happen. So you have to constantly keep reminding everybody that this is, it's like, it's all of us, not just us and them. And that a dish on the pass is not the end of your responsibility. It's not the end of your job because that dish now has to be lovingly and caringly carried over to a table, lovingly placed down in front of a guest, explained properly so that they, in a, in a informative, but not over the top stupid way, but in an mm. informative way. Um, and if that front house person doesn't care enough about what the kitchen's doing, then they will never be able to genuinely do that. And the kitchen will never be able to genuinely help front of house do a great job if they if they think their job stops at that kitchen pass because you just throw the food up there and walk away from it. Yeah. That's that's not caring enough about it. And like fortunately we're learning that more and more and more as we go. And the guest is the ultimate. They're they're really important. As is, you know, the whole team you work with and the level of respect you've got to give them the same as what you give the guests and furthermore, our suppliers yeah. and our community that we live in. Up and down the chain. Yeah, all of that is so important. And if you think you can just be rude to a delivery driver and you work on my team because they've come in late or because they've done something or whatever, then you just got another thing coming, mate. You can't be on the team. You can't play because it's not – it's not the ethos, you know. Yeah. How the industry's changed. I, just as you were saying that, I remember, I don't know why it's fixed in my head, but uh, at the Connell in London, I remember si the junior waiters used to come down, they used to wear white jackets, mm -hmm. and the chef de wrong, which were the, you know, they were the section yeah, waiters, or yeah, yeah. wear, wear, wore tails, and the junior waiters weren't even allowed to come into contact with the yeah. customers, and they used to come down into the kitchen, which was in the depths of the building, and they were literally, I think, terrified of walking along to the chef at the pass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost with their trays, you know, on guard kind of thing <laughs> because there was an absolute separation and division, more mm. importantly, because of that pass. Ridiculous. And I and I think back on it and I go, gee, I spent four years there learning incredible things mm. and everything about food, but I, ne I didn't learn. I never ate in the restaurant. We weren't allowed to. So I never learned anything about how that food left the pass and, more importantly, how people ate it and enjoyed it, you know, that connection between what you did and how the customer consumed it. But what do you, what's your opinion? What do you think? Do you think it's better now? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Hands down. Yeah. Hands down. You really get a very poor response out of that old way of doing things, you know, by telling people off and by being demanding and all of that. You get yeah. a lot more by nurturing. Well, we you teach know, our kids at it, school yeah. in a completely different way. It's involved. It's, it's problem solving. Um, it's not by rote. You're not you know, chop, 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 chop. Yeah, correct. And I think the realisation certainly as, a, as you get older as a chef, or I did as I got older, and I'm, I'm seeing stars in the kitchen. I remember George, for example. Mm, you know, he was like mm. 20, 21 years old. He just was attuned to everything that was going on. Mm. And when you see that, you go, age is irrelevant, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, sex is irrelevant, for example. Absolutely. Or gen gender Absolutely. is irrelevant, for example. So, you know, I think what I've, uh, I've enjoyed as times ha have moved on is the fact that the questions I was never asked or the, the involvement that I was never given the privilege of being 
part of, for example, now we do. Yeah. You know, put your staff front of house, you know, and yeah. get them to work in the bar, make a coffee, you know, do front of house, for yeah. example, gives them, all of a sudden they realise the pressures and stresses that your other team members are under to deliver what you're trying to deliver. Yeah, it's, it's easy to think you're the busiest guy in the room <laughs> or the hardest working person in the yeah. room, right? That's really easy on a team. But it's, um, it's really important to understand that everyone in that room has been chosen for a reason, right? We yeah. don't, we, they've not just been brought along just so they can fill a spot or fill a hole. They've been chosen for a reason. So there must be a reason why they're in the room. If that is then later down the track or that they're not good enough or whatever, then that's a different situation altogether. But it's it's up to all of us as team members to understand that we're all contributing just as much, mm. but maybe in different ways because yeah. we're all different and we all have different talent talent points. And, we all, and that's what makes us a good team. Yeah. You don't want everyone to be you know, the full forward. You don't want everyone to be the goalkeeper. You want a good spread of different people that, that have different skill sets that, that are good at different things. And the, the respect for each other and nurturing of each other is really important. I believe if you arm people with knowledge, then you get a machine. You know, diamonds in, diamonds out. That's the way, that's the way we see it. Tra- train them well, give them the knowledge so that they, when they do approach a table, if they front a house, they have that skill set. And confidence, because yeah. it gives the confidence to be able to give that wonderful service, that confident service, tell you what's on your plate, tell you what's on the wine list and and tell you what the wine's all about and all that sort of stuff that makes the experience enhanced mm. even more. And the guys in the kitchen, they're the same. They should see what's going on outside and they should understand the level of complexity of running a service. And, you know, there's no point in getting upset with a cook or a chef because he's cut the onions the wrong way if you haven't shown him how to do it properly. Mm. That's the first step, show him how to do it properly. And I believe that once you give the people the confidence, grab that knife in their hand and cut it, those onions, the way they're meant to be cut, then you've got another star in the making because then they can start to move on and learn more things. As you're saying that, as a customer, I've already said yes. Do you know Mm. what I mean? You know when you sit down and that kind of service, that kind of experience is sure. Whatever Why not? You, surrender. Whatever you want. Yeah, surrender. Here's my wallet. Take it. Well, that's, that's the that's the you that, know when you get to that point when somebody comes to your table and says, "Why don't you eat this?" Gary, and you go, "Sure." That's the key. I remember one <laughs> one time I walked into this restaurant. It was it's a nice place. I go there. I go there quite a bit. It's the um, Carlton Wine Room, right? And um, I go to a lot of restaurants quite a bit. I love eating out, right? So you know, I used to. Jo- I'm, I'm digressing now. From you can point, go in but, any direction but, you, you know, want to I go. I used to joke with the kids, you know, like as long as I've got enough money to have a decent bottle of wine and Sunday lunch, I'm happy, mate. I don't need anything else. I don't need the boats and all the stuff. I just need to be secure of that. <laughs> then COVID came and I couldn't go to any restaurants <laughs> because they were all closed and I couldn't afford to anyway. <laughs> um, but now they're back open. I'm starting to frequent them more again. But I remember walking into Carlton Wine Room one day. I sat down. And the young waiter, who was very good, I've got to say, but only very young, he would have been in his mid-20s or something like that, he walked over, he looked at me and he said, um, Negroni. He actually just called me Negroni. <laughs> and I and I went, sure. I, yeah, I just, I, what can you say to that? It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I obviously looked like I really needed one. Yeah, or you look like a Negroni. <laughs> just, that's it. And that is, that's not youth. That's well. That's an innate understanding of that's just feeding. clever hospitality. Yeah, it is, isn't yeah. it? He and, just knew I would like a Negroni. Yeah, and he's not selling you something because he's just selling you. He's just going. I'm going to feed and water you. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm going to do. But getting getting, I guess, to that point, and I want to touch on what you just said there, um, where you can get them to just 
surrender. Everyone, I remember having, and I'm going to name drop here now, I had a lunch with Jerry Lewis once because he, he did a charity gig. And As in Jerry involved. Lewis, the As in the star the comedian passed away. Yeah. Like, oh. And we had a lunch because we were doing this gig together. I was doing the menu and he was doing the act. It was to raise charity uh, for muscular dystrophy raise money for muscular dystrophy and he was a very staunch advocate for mm. it and all that. So he came out here and I was very lucky enough to be invited to have a lunch with him um, like the Sunday after or something. He said this one thing during lunch. He kept us luck in laughter all the way through lunch, by the way. We were just pissing ourselves laughing all the way through it. But there's one thing he said that I'll never forget is that everyone leaves the house to be seduced. Everyone wants to be seduced. It's just a question of them trusting you so that they allow you to do it. And I mean that in a in a really good way. Like when they come into the restaurant and they sit down, it's touching on that point you said before. Yes, I go into a restaurant and I want to be seduced by the atmosphere and the environment and I want to feel like what you just said. I don't care what I'm going to spend here today because I am going to have a ball and the, the lunch of my life or the dinner of my life. It's going to be good. This is mm. going to be good. And I remember those words because I, I sort of got it. It's like, well, yeah, we all want to be, you know, taken care of. We all want to be, and we want to be able to say, okay, I surrender. Mm. And for me, you know, if anybody's listening go, oh, well, that's fine because, you know, you can afford it and I can't. For me, that can be a coffee, a glass of wine, um, you know, a pasta at a bar. You know, if, if, if the, the place you're going to under, can identify they can see where you, why you're there because people go to restaurants. It can for, happen at a, a lot of it can happen at a pub, at a counter service pub. It can sure. actually happen, and I've been to some pubs that are very so friendly that it's like, you know what, it wasn't the best parmigiana of my yeah. life, but you leave with a smile. But and you don't it know why. Was so good, I enjoyed <laughs> it so much. And you're right; it's it doesn't matter about you know the level of dining that we're talking about. We're talking about a concept here that works on every level. Mm. One thing that's on my list that I thought I should have asked earlier is. I need to talk about Florentino's because it's yeah. a, an establishment restaurant. If Probably it's the oldest restaurant in Australia, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think so, yeah. Yeah. And so if you, if you talk about, I suppose, restaurants that not just part of Melbourne but they're central to its identity, Florentino's would be one of it. People for generations remember that restaurant. Now, just one last thing. Um, you're an ambassador now for Taste of Harmony. Is That's that right. right? Yeah. So, I have been since they started about 10 years ago. So or so. 10 years, yeah, and which is, a, you know, an organisation that's celebrating cultural diversity. Can yeah. you just tell us quickly about yeah. that? And I'll be brief. Taste of Harmony is a great initiative. Um, it was started through, you know, the desire to get people to come along to the workplace, bring maybe a dish from their culture and sit around the workplace at lunchtime and share it. And so that it's all about demystifying you know, the differences in, in people's culture. So but through food, getting to know one another, getting to know about different cultures, taking away that fear that people have with different cultures when they don't know about it. So it's about harmony and bringing people together through food. It's actually evolved now and they do all sorts of things to do that and bring people together. Like they, you might have a virtual lunch, different lunch, and you bring your own cultural thing together with, with other people and different sorts of stuff. This year it runs from the 15th of March to the 26th of March. And on 26th of Mar on March, I'm doing a virtual lunch with Nazim Hussain, who's a comedian. Oh. So that's going to be funny. <laughs> but it runs every year. So it's really cool. People and should get into it. And just so that people understand what that is. So when you get a taste of something, have you had a moment where somebody's bought something and you've just gone, wow, that's incredible? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because you, 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 you've seen what other people do in different cultures. Yeah. 
And there's so many similarities, isn't there? I love the idea when somebody brings a dish, you recognise other cultures and mm. other ideas and that trail of history that we all seem to forget sometimes that's thousands of years old yeah. and connects us all, right? 100%. Uh, Guy Grossi, thank you so much uh, for coming in. And knowing that you go into the restaurant every day, I shan't keep you any longer. And I'll, when I'm sitting at home <laughs> having a cup of coffee, I'll think about you on the bus. Good on you. <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank you. So now for my tips and tricks. And since we talked about cacio e pepe, which is a classic Roman dish, let's have a go at changing how you think about pasta and cheese because essentially it means cheese and pepper. But there's a specific technique that you have to use to get that lovely silky creamy sauce. And it involves undercooking the pasta just a little bit. So it's simmering away. It's cooked for about six minutes when it says eight minutes on the packet. And you lift it out into a pan where you've toasted some cracked pepper just to release that lovely kind of aromatic quality that it has. And you drag over a bit of water. You might even put just a little bit extra water, maybe half a cup of water. And now you've got slightly undercooked pasta simmering in that water. And what it's doing is it's dragging off the starches from the pasta and it's thickening that water. So you get this starchy, slightly thickened liquid. Separate bowl, Grate some Sardinian pecorino, nice and fine, and add literally a tablespoon of that cooking water. So you now have got pasta simmering in water. You've got a little paste of this beautiful, strong pecorino. Take it off the heat. The pasta's just cooked. Now you stir in that lovely pecorino paste. And what happens is that silky cooking liquid that has reduced and it's kind of coating itself around the pasta now has this kind of cheesy medium that it does its thing. And you end up with this lovely, silky, cheesy sauce with a big punch of pepper into a bowl, grate some pecorino over the top, a little more pinch of pepper. And can I tell you, it is absolutely delicious. And when you nail it, and I mean it's coated in that beautiful sauce, it will become a family favourite. A Plate to Call Home is presented by me, Gary Megan, and produced by Dave Swalensky, and audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.